Now, let's take a look at Ruth chapter 2 together. If you have your Bible, I want to invite you to look at Ruth, um, open to Ruth chapter 2. It's in your Old Testament. If you're not quite sure where you're at, we give a little bit of a roadmap so you can find kind of the surrounding books so you can kind of, so you can find it. And if you don't bring your Bible, don't, don't worry. We have a, hopefully receive that, that handout on your way in here so you can follow along with us in the passage that we're going to be looking at today. This is an incredible story, a story of love, a story of redemption, of, of God's care, and especially because it's God's care in the midst of very dark days. The story of, of Ruth happens in the period of the judges. This is the dark ages of Israel's history. This is how Judges um, 20, verse, uh, chapter 21, verse 25 describes these days. It says this, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So this describes the time period, this, this era of just everyone doing what's right in their own eyes. It was a, it was a very dark period for the, the history of, of Israel. And we talked this last week about the kinds of dark days that we saw take place in the story of Ruth um, and the responses that people have in that time, but also the story, how that relates to our story and how we respond to dark days and the pressure in our life. And there's three things that we saw happen in that story, but also we see in our own story that when pressure comes from dark days, we have a, um, a temptation to go away from God's plan and God's ways. We have a temptation to give in to the pressures around us, and we end up um, adopting the culture, the surroundings of, of, our, of our environments, or we can just give up. And we saw that take place in, the, in Ruth chapter 1. We also recognize that in our own lives. But here's the good news about this book, that this book reminds us that even when we go away or give in or give up, God doesn't give up on us. Isn't that good news? Yes. That even in our darkest days, God's light is still there. His mercy is still there in the shadows. He's still working. He still cares. And we see that. And this book is such a great reminder of hope and redemption that we have in the Lord, even in our darkest days. And for Naomi, uh, her days were very dark. And that's what we learned in Ruth chapter 1, that her, she experienced some very dark days. And um, her and her husband, Elimelech, when pressure came, a famine hit the land. They lived in Bethlehem, which means house of bread. And the, the irony is there's no bread in the house of bread in Bethlehem. So in the midst of that pressure, they choose to go away from God's promised land, God's presence and his people, and they go to Moab. So they make a, a bad decision in the dark days, and their bad decision leads to darker days. They go to Moab, a place that God did not intend them to be, and in that place, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, passes away. So now she's left with her two um, sons, and she stays in Mo, the place of Moab. She doesn't go back to Bethlehem. She stays in Moab and she finds um, wives for her sons and they get married, which was not a good decision as well because God was, it was forbidden for them to uh, marry with the Moabites. And so this was, it, it goes from bad to worse. And they stay there for 10 years. And after, the, after 10 years, both of Naomi's adult sons pass away. So she, they left Bethlehem to escape a famine, but now Naomi's in a place where she's now been a part of three funerals. And so it's a, it's a, it's a tragedy. It's a, it's a very um, dark and difficult time for Naomi 
And now she here, she has two Moabite daughter-in-laws. And it's in this point that, that Ruth, sorry, Naomi has, you know, gone away. She's given in. She's given up on God. But God has not given up on her. In fact, God has given Naomi a surprising resource in her daughter-in-law, a Moabite daughter-in-law named Ruth. And Ruth demonstrates incredible commitment and loyalty, and she's committed to God, and she's committed to Naomi. And Ruth says to her mother-in-law, I will go wherever you go. And I will, I will follow your God. So Ruth in, gives up her homeland, and she gives up her ancestral gods, and she follows the one true God, Yahweh, and she follows Naomi, her, her mother-in-law. In the midst of her own pain and grief, she sticks. She remains. And it's a beautiful thing. And it's a great resource that Naomi has that she doesn't realize. See, because when Naomi goes with Ruth and they leave Moab and they go back to Bethlehem, it's when they come back to Bethlehem, Naomi tells everyone in the town, do not call me Naomi anymore. And Naomi means pleasant. So she says, don't call me pleasant anymore. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Because she has gotten to a place where she feels that God has abandoned her. And so her life is very bitter. And so we end chapter 1 with kind of this tone of what good could come from all of this. There's all this grief. There's all of this pain. There's all of this tragedy. And here Naomi um, doesn't necessarily see the gift that Ruth is to her and the fact that there's new harvest happening. She is just stuck in this really painful and difficult place. And we can relate to that because when we find ourselves in a spot of grief and loss and pain, it's very easy for us to slip into kind of this position where we feel powerless to the circumstances and the harshness of life and we feel like there's 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 nothing we can do and we end up we can end up taking a, a victim posture and that's the very place that Naomi finds herself um she's finding herself in that spot so the question then is how do we move forward rather than when the circumstances of our life overwhelm us and there's grief and there's loss and to find ourselves very tempting to find ourselves in that victim posture and it's an uncomfortable place to be how do we move forward in the midst of overwhelming overwhelming circumstances pain loss and that's the question the question is this how do we move forward that's kind of where chapter one ends the question is how do we move forward from there and that's their question but it's our question as well how do we when we fight we face uh, circumstances that we are outside of our control and we can't, we feel powerless. Um, rather than slip into a victim position, how can we move forward in the midst of that and even the unknown future? And this is the beauty of Ruth chapter 2 because in Ruth chapter 2, we begin to see how God is still at work in a more prominent way. And it's a beautiful thing. And so I want to look at it with you and so we can, because there's so much we can learn from it about God and his mercy in our lives. And so what I want to do is I want to invite you to please stand as we read Ruth chapter 2 together. I want to read a portion of it so we can get a sense of this story. And then we'll go back and we'll look at it verse by verse. But Ruth chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, it says this. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out 
entered a field and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Just then, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. Boaz asked the overseer of his, of his harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? The overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in the field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along with the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And where, whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. Okay, go ahead and have a seat, and we'll take a look at it together. So beginning in verse 1, we are introduced to a new character to the story. This is what it says. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. So what we see here is foreshadowing because this is going to be, Boaz is going to be a key character in this story. And, and they haven't met Boaz or anything yet. We will a little bit later, but it's kind of a, a statement of foreshadowing because he is going to be a prominent person. It says this, that he's a relative on her husband's side. That is Naomi's husband's uh, um, side. So she, he's an older gentleman, probably closer to Naomi's age. And it does say this, he's a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech. So he's a man of standing. That is, he is, uh, probably has resources. He, we know that he has a number of fields and he has people who are working for him. And so he has resources, but he's also a man of standing. That is, he has a good reputation of having character. And that's what we know about him. So this is kind of what we know about Boaz. And last week, um, when, when I was here and we were talking about Ruth chapter one, uh, someone here in the church asked me this question. Asked the question, what do we know about Boaz uh, before um, he met Ruth? And the answer is, he was ruthless. I know. Guess, guess who told me that one? Roger. If you know Roger, you can thank him for that one. So at this point, Boaz is ruthless. That is, he has not met Ruth. But um, that will soon change. But here's, here's, this is just, and like I said, a foreshadowing of who Boaz is. Now the camera angle switches and it goes back to Naomi and Ruth. So this is what it says next. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, 
Go ahead, my daughter. So Ruth and Naomi have now just re-entered into Bethlehem, and there's been a famine. They're destitute. They're starving. They have no resources. They have no land. And so they are, they're in a tough spot. And it's in this spot that Ruth says to Naomi, let me go out and pick up leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. So what she's referring to is this concept of gleaning. She's like, we need to find some food, so I'm going to go out and glean. And the, the idea of gleaning is, is really, it's rooted in God's care for his people, and especially people who are um, poor and in need. In Leviticus, this is what it says. This is God's command to his people in terms of what it means to glean, uh, what, what he's set up to care for those who are in need. In verse uh, 19, sorry, nine, chapter 19, verse 9, it says this. When you reap the harvest— of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. So God commanded those who are farmers to not reap the harvest on the edges of their fields. The whole idea is this, that you leave margin on your fields un, un, unharvested for the marginalized, for those who are destitute and poor. This is a, a way to care for them. This is part of God's ancient um, welfare system. And it's brilliant that he set this up for them. Verse 10, it says this, do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. So even if you drop something as you're harvesting, don't pick it back up. Leave it there for those who will come behind and follow. So again, it's the welfare system that God had set up for those who are poor and needy. And it's a beautiful thing. And and it's not just that um, he's provided for them. They have a way to to receive it. So they they show up. They've got to work for it, of course. But as they work for it, then they receive. And this is part of the system plan that God had set up for his people. And we know that God has a heart for those who are marginalized because we see this in Deuteronomy. I'll just show you this verse. It's great. It says this, he defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. God had said his heart is for those who are hurting. His heart is for those who are marginalized. And we see his heart displayed in his law that the people were to follow. Now, of course, they lived in the time of the judges. And this is a time when everyone is doing right in their own eyes. So just because God had set up this system and set up this law, that doesn't necessarily mean that every farmer is going to follow it. Because, of course, farmers are thinking about a bottom line, and they're saying, well, there's margin here. What if we just, you know, push that out a little bit further, push that a little bit further, and we could make a little bit more money. The bottom line is there. And so this is the, this is the challenge. So the question is, are there people who are willing to follow God as a part of their um, recognition that there's a God that loves those who are hurting, to, play, to, to be open to care for those who are poor and destitute? But this is the heart of God. So then, This is what Ruth is asking Naomi to do. But now notice Naomi's response in this verse. Naomi says to her, "Um, go ahead, my daughter. So Ruth asks, hey, can I go out and glean? Naomi's response is, go ahead. Now what's interesting to me in this response is what's not there. Naomi says, go ahead. But you'd kind of expect Naomi, wouldn't you, to say, great idea, Ruth. Just wait a minute. Let me get my stuff. I'll go with you. We'll go glean. 
We'll go, we'll go seek um, provision that God has provided in his law that is set up for us. But it's not there. She doesn't do that. You would expect Naomi to be thinking to herself, Ruth, you're a Moabite widow. You're a foreigner in a strange land. You don't know where you're going. You don't have the social connections. You don't have the understanding of how this culture works and this environment or where to go. He's, she, she doesn't say, oh, you know, you're a really vulnerable place because you're a woman on her own. Why don't I go with you? And even if maybe physically I can't do as much work, I want to go to be next to you because I want you to be cared for because you're in a vulnerable, vulnerable place. And not every Israelite loves the Moabites. And so she's, she's unprotected. But it's interesting, Naomi doesn't say that. She just says, go ahead, my daughter. Now, it doesn't give us the reason for why she says go and she doesn't go. I suspect it has something to do with the place that Naomi finds herself. In the midst of all the tragedy, the loss, the circumstances, the fact that she has gone away, given in, and she's given up. And, a, and, and really, because she's given up on God, she assumes God has given up on her. And now she calls herself bitter. My guess is that the bitterness in her heart has settled down to a point of depression. Where she just feels no motivation. She doesn't want to leave the house. She doesn't want to go out. She just, she's lost hope. And that's the place that she is at. But Ruth, on the other hand, um, has, says, I'm going to go out. She has a, a, a proactive, she takes a proactive step of faith, recognizing God has said he'll provide. And so I'm going to step out and glean um, in this case because I believe God uh, it provides. Now, she's going out. And she's gleaning. And so this is what it says. So she went out and entered a field and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. So she goes out, she enters in the field, she begins to glean. Now, many of us have not experienced gleaning before um, in a field, but maybe you remember pre-COVID, the pre-COVID days um, when you could go to Costco and when you go to Costco, you could maybe go and not ever plan on buying a lunch or a dinner, but just go around and have free samples. And that was kind of like, you'd go away full. It's like gleaning Costco style. Um, <laughs> maybe you remember those. I miss those days. But um, so she goes out and she's gleaning. She's behind the harvesters. She's picking up grain. She's picking up barley. And as it turns out, this is a key statement. It says in verse 3, as it turned out. So, sorry, stay there in verse 3. As it turned out. This is cool. This is, this is a statement of of kind of like coincidence, right? And this is one of the key elements of the narration, this, the beauty of this story that, that used coincidence. Um, but, it, you know, literally translated means chanced upon chance. That is, luckily, she just showed up in, guess whose field? Boaz's field. Now, we as the reader, and the whole reason the narrator writes this is not so that we're like, wow, that's lucky. But that we would stop and say, oh, what's behind that? This isn't just coincidence, this is God's hand at work. And we have a theological term for that. We have a theological term, it's God's providence. 
See, God has two hands. He has the visible hand, where God works in miracles at times, but then there's the invisible hand of God, of pro- uh, where God works by providence. We, we don't see, but he is working out his plan, his provisions for his people, and God is working in, in this scenario. As it turned out, she happens to go to the field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Now, when we, when we consider this concept of providence, the question is, well, if God is providing and he has a plan and he's going to accomplish his plan, what's my role in that? So if God's hand is working and he's providently pulling these things together, does that mean I get to stay in bed and just scroll through Facebook because God's got it, and I'll just hang here, wait till he gets everything all set up, and then I'll, you know, reap the benefit? No, that's not it. We would like that, but that's not it. On the other hand, is it then that we say, well, it all depends on me to get things done, and that's how God works. No, It's not about that either. It's about being dependent on the Lord, trusting him, but also being proactive in our faith. And we see um, Ruth being proactive in her faith, even though God is still working behind the scenes because he's um, the God who works um, in in those ways. So she shows up in Boaz's field. Then verse four, just then, you see the statement again, just then, whoa, guess what happened? Boaz arrives in Bethlehem, uh, arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you, they answered. So here's another great statement of coincidence, right? He's showing up from Bethlehem. He's, he's a businessman and he's got probably lots of fields. He's coming from the city, Bethlehem. He's coming out to his fields, checking out. He just so happens to show up at this field on the very day that Ruth is there. And it's, it's one of those moments when you're like watching a chick flick. Have you ever been in those spots? You're watching a chick flick and you're like, oh man, who writes this stuff? I mean, this never happens. It's too predictable. And how does this all like come together perfectly? And, you know, you're about to say something. You look at other people in the room and they're like wiping tears because it's like, you know, it's two people that, you know, bumped into the airport. The flight's canceled and now they're stuck together. And, you know, they, the characters don't know what's going on, but we as the viewers see this bigger place plot that's taking place, this love story that's being formed. That's what's happening here. God is behind the scenes working out this incredible story. And so it says, just then he arrives at Bethlehem and he greeted the harvesters, the Lord be with you. The Lord bless you. They answered. This is how you're greeted at work by your boss every day, isn't it? (laughs) Wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't that be remarkable? And yet here, here, Boaz greets his, his workers. It's, it's, the, it's the contractor showing up on the, the job site and he says to all the workers, you know, the Lord be with you. And you hear all the framers say, the Lord bless you too. I mean, wouldn't that be remarkable? I mean, God's name is used a lot on a construction site. Um, <laughs> but not always in this way. So it's truly remarkable. And here's the beautiful, beautiful thing is that this guy must be the real deal. Because if the boss is saying the Lord be with you and everyone is saying God bless you too, that's, there's some legitimacy there. Because someone could say, anyone could say Lord bless you, but if it's not met with the reality of their life, how they're living life, well, I'm a Christian, but I live out my, as a boss in, in, or in my workplace in some way, 
people won't respect it. But here we see a guy who's living it out because his workers are like, God bless you too. They recognize that he's a man of character, that he lives the life. He has an authentic faith. It's powerful. So they, he blesses them. And then the next verse, Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? So he's greeted the people that, that work for him. Then he looks out on the field and he's like, oh, I see someone I don't recognize. And it's then that he asks the question. Uh, he sees Ruth. He says, who does that young woman um, belong to? So go back to that verse for a second. And it's, it's kind of worded differently, but he basically, he basically just saying, who is she? You know, and does she have a husband? And you kind of get the impression that, you know, maybe there's some attraction there and some questioning, but you also get a sense that he's just a guy who knows what's going on. He pays attention. So there's somebody new. Who is she? What's her story? Maybe there's attraction there. Uh, you know, um, that's very legitimate, but there's also a part of him that just cares for people. Who is she? Tell me her story. She asked the question. Then the next verse says this. The overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. So she's kind of the talk of the town. Um, Naomi's come back and she's come with this Moabite daughter-in-law. That's all she has, this Moabite daughter-in-law. So where's Naomi? How's this all been? What's been going on in her life? And now who's Ruth, this Moabite? So she's the talk of the town. This is kind of giving that context. She's like, she's the one. And then that everyone's been talking about. Then verse, uh, the next verse, she said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvester. She came into the field and she has remained here from morning till now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So by asking the question and listening, Boaz begins to learn some things that are really important about Ruth. He finds out, first of all, that when she came, she asked permission. Isn't that great? She says, hey, will you please allow me to glean in this field? And then it says that she came into the field and has remained here from morning until now. So she has been working hard. And she's been going through the heat of the day. She took a short break. But she, the, the point of the, 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 the foreman is saying, this gal works. She is there. She came to do a job. She is working. So he's learning about her character, and who she is. And he also, of course, by the way, because now he knows context, he knows that this is the Ruth that came with Naomi. He knows now that she doesn't have a husband, that she doesn't have a father. It's just her and Naomi. That is, there's no one to care for and protect her. And as a foreigner and a widow living in this land, she is very vulnerable. So Boaz goes into protection mode. And I love it. Listen to, look at his response in the next verse. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Next verse. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. So Boaz goes into protection mode. He knows there's no one that's looking after her. There's no one that's, that's there to care for her, protect her. So he goes in that mode. He says, stay in my field because I know we can care for you here. You know, stay with my, my servants, follow my harvesters. And God, guess what? I've told all the guys. 
to, to not touch you, to not harass you, not, a, not take advantage of you. You will be safe here. He's taking this step. What a powerful statement from a, for a woman who's in a very vulnerable position. And then he says, I love it. He says, whenever you're thirsty, go get a drink from the water, the jars, the, men, the, jars the men have filled. And this would be shocking because as a Moabite woman, if she came to the place of watering, she would be the one that would be expected to serve the men. But here Boaz is saying, hey, you're not here to be our servant. We're here to serve you. So powerful, so amazing. Boaz's character and the way that he's caring for her here in this moment. Then next verse. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? She said, why are you so gracious to me and so kind? I'm nothing. I'm just this foreign foreigner who's here. It's, she, she recognizes she is a recipient of real, genuine, and generous grace. grace. And so she asked this question, then verse 11. Boaz replies, replied, it has been told all about, I have been told all about you, um, what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother, your homeland, and came to live with the people you did not know before. So he has heard the stories. And her character stands out. And here she is now. She's left everything, and she's been committed to, to Naomi. She's a woman who left everything and has experienced great loss in her own life, but is devoted to her mother-in-law. That's unthinkable. That's incredible. What an incredible statement of, of character. And not only that, I mean, honestly, here she is working in his fields, and there's lots of other ways that are less reputable for her to get money or to find grain. And yet here she is doing a hard day's work. And so he's like, I've heard about you. I recognize your character. It speaks for it. So he praises her. Then he offers a prayer for her in the next verse. It says this, May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So he prays a prayer of blessing over her, that God would care for her, that he would, she would find um, uh, shelter and, and peace under his wings. It's a powerful statement. Then in verse 13, we see her response. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she, sa- she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. She knows she's at the lowest of the low, She's a foreigner. She doesn't even rise to the level of a servant. And yet she's being a recipient of such incredible grace. Then verse 14. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. So at the mealtime, Boaz says, you know, she's probably wouldn't be allowed probably in the place that they're all eating and gathering. She'd probably be off, you know, trying to find some shade under a tree. He invites her in, have a meal. Here's food. He gives her enough food that there's leftovers. She needs a to-go bag, a little doggy bag that she takes with her because she has, there's so much food that she's given to her just even at lunch. It's an incredible, another gesture of generous grace from Boaz to Ruth. Then next verse. 
As she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. So don't embarrass her. Don't reprimand her. Let her go. To, she's basically saying, go to the prime spot, Ruth. This is like where the men are gathering their sheaves. This is the place to be. And don't, don't embarrass her. Don't reprimand her. Then verse 16, even pull out some stalks from uh, for her from the bundles and leave them there for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. So, hey, when you're gathering the stalks and the sheaves, just take some and go, whoops, drop some. And it's like, it's like Easter for Ruth. You know, she gets to pick that stuff up and it's like, it's powerful. So again, another um, grace, um, generous grace that he's offering to her. He's caring for her in this uh, abundant way. Then verse 17. So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered, and it amounted to an ephah. This is one hardworking gal. She gleaned all day long. Then she threshed the barley that she had gathered, and it amounted to an ephah. So that's around 30 pounds of grain. That's a lot of threshing. That's a lot. So instead of a day's amount of grain, she's weeks amount of food. This is incredible amount. And she, she goes through this whole process. And then verse 18, she carried it back to town and her mother-in-law saw, saw how much she had gathered. Ruth, Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. So Ruth comes home with a ton of grain that she had threshed. And then, oh yeah, by the way, I've got some leftover food, some good stuff that I'm sharing with you. And so now Naomi is amazed. And this really truly was probably not what Naomi was expecting when Ruth was coming home. She was expecting a far different story from a foreign widow living in a, in a place, that she, you know, and trying to glean. I mean, there's a lot of other stories that she was probably more likely bracing herself to hear. And yet this was not probably it, this abundance of extravagant grace um, that's been given to them. So this is, this is what happens. Then the next verse, look at her response. Her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she's shocked. She's asking some questions. Verse 20. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. So now she gives little details. Then now in verse 20, the Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead, she added. This man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Now this is a, an incredible moment here in this story because I want you to notice something. As Ruth has explained, I was in Boaz's field and that's where I caught all this and he was so kind and he was so generous. Listen to Naomi's response in verse 20. The Lord bless him. Whoa. Is that a statement of faith coming out of Naomi's lips? Isn't that powerful? This is probably words that she has not spoken for quite some time. But even Naomi can't deny the fact that this is God's hand at work. That this is grace. This is God's mercy in a dark point in their life. Even she can't help but admit, and there's this spark of faith, the Lord bless him. She's acknowledging God. Oh, I thought God abandoned you. No, no, no. She's recognizing maybe God hasn't abandoned us after all. So there's this moment where there's this shift Faith is now activated in Naomi's heart. Naomi says, the Lord bless him, she said to her daughter-in-law. He is not showing his, stop showing his kindness to the living and the dead. And then she starts thinking and she adds, wait a minute. 
Boaz. He's one of our guardian redeemers. And so she's like putting together. Now all of a sudden you go from faith to hope. Why hope? Well, in your translation, um, you may see kinsman redeemer or family redeemer or just simply redeemer, but she recognizes there's something, there's this title that's given to Boaz. We'll talk more about this in the weeks to come. But this idea, this concept of a guardian redeemer is very similar to many cultures, including our culture. We have a very informal way of kind of looking at this, but even in our culture, we have an informal sense that there's someone in every family who is kind of assigned to look after the rest of the family, or we look to them to care for the family. So in your family, maybe Uncle Bob, who, you know, something happens to your family, something happens to parents, it's Uncle Bob that steps in and I'll take care of the kids and I'll make sure they're cared for, they have, you know, money for college, that kind of a thing. If you're, um, that's kind of the informal way. If you're coming from more of a, you know, liturgical or formal background, you're familiar with the phrase of the Godfather. Um, And I'm not talking about the mafia, but I'm talking about like, a godfather figure who in your life says, hey, because it's a spiritual thing, it's a recognition that, hey, I step in and I'll care for you and you'll care for your family or your kids or whatever it might be if something were ever to take place. And so this is that concept. We'll talk more about it in the weeks to come. But Naomi is putting this together and she's gone from faith in God, which is new, a new expression for her, a reactivated expression for her, to now hope. Maybe there's something here, that God is working again. And the question is, where did that come from? How did she get to this point of renewed faith and renewed hope? The answer is from her daughter-in-law, Ruth. It was Ruth who stepped out in faith. And as she stepped out in faith and trusting God's provision, she formed this new friendship. And as a result of that, now there's this sense of God could still be working in our lives. There is hope. And I don't want any one of us to underestimate a simple step of faith. All Ruth did was, I'm going to go out and trust that God will provide for us. I'm going to show up to do the next best thing. Circumstances are overwhelming. I'm I'm filled with grief and loss and anxiety. I'm going to do the next best thing. I'm going to step out in faith and trust God. And here's the deal. When we renew our faith, when we step out in faith, it not only changes us, but it changes our world. Because as Ruth steps out in faith, it begins to impact the people around her. And I think this is important for us to know, especially as we head into this new year. As we go into this new year, it's important for us to say, I need to renew my faith in God, that he'll provide in the midst of my circumstances, that he cares for me in the midst of my pain and my grief. I need to trust him. And it's a simple step of faith. And those simple acts of faith can have huge impact on the people around you. For some of you parents or grandparents, it's the simple step of faith to say, I'm going to start each morning reading scripture because your kids are watching and will help them understand, guess what? That's where the foundation lies. It's coming to God in dependence on him and his word. For some of you, it's a simple step of faith to say, God, in this new year, I need to make sure that I'm giving. I need to make sure that I am um, looking for ways to be generous. And it's not necessarily because, uh, it, it, you know, because it's the, you know, maybe to get credit for it, but to simply come to the recognition and acknowledgement, I need to do this for myself because I need to recognize that all that I have has actually come from God anyway. 
So it's a statement of faith. God, you've provided for me. So like Boaz, help me to be a conduit of generosity and grace and giving and providing for others. It's a simple step of faith that you make that has an impact in the lives of others. For some of you, the simple act of faith is to say, I've, you know, maybe you've been wounded, you've been hurt, and in your own, within your own family, maybe it's time for you to say, we need to stop and not let history you know, overwhelm our future. But we need to stop and say, how can we move forward and bring reconciliation in our home with our relationships and move forward in a new way? There's simple steps of faith that we can make that change us, but change the people, the world around us. And we see that take place. Ruth steps out in faith and it has impact and it's moving forward. Now, the next verse, it's so, it's so helpful to see these last few verses. It says this, Then Ruth the Moabite said, He even said to me, Stay with my workers until they finish harvesting my grain. Next verse. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him, because in someone else's field you might be harmed. She recognized, stay there. Keep going to Boaz's field. This is the safest place for you to be. Verse 23. So Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvest were finished, and she lived there um, and she lived with her mother-in-law. So this is the closing of this chapter. And as this chapter closes, it closes with the ending of the harvest. The barley and wheat harvest are coming to a close. The question is, well, what happens next for them after the harvest is over? Well, you'll have to come back next week and find out. <laughs> come back and find out what happens next. And then the other question is, well, what happens with this new friendship that Ruth has with Boaz? Come back next week. You'll find out more. You'll hear the rest of the story. I don't want you to miss it. Now, as we wrap up, though, let me just close with that same question that we started with at the very beginning of, the, of this um, of our study in this chapter. The question was this, how do we move forward in the midst of challenging circumstances and uncertain outcomes? How do we move forward when we're overwhelmed by grief, when we're overwhelmed by pain, when circumstances hit us that we have no control over? How do we move forward? Well, there's several ways we can try to move forward, and I'll just highlight a couple of them. The first one is this, we can, do, we can choose a direction of self-direction. That is, I've got to power through this circumstance. I've got to power through this pain, this challenge in my life. And if I just work hard enough, I'll get it through. But experience will tell us this is exhausting. We find ourselves burnt out and it doesn't work. We're, we can't fix it, solve it on our own. The second one is this. We can, do, we can take the route of deferring. That is, we take a, more, a, a very passive approach. Okay, well, I just, I'll just ra- lift my hands up. I, there's nothing I can do. God's got to do it, and we just sit in our hands. That's also not a great re- approach because our experience will also tell us that it doesn't get us anywhere, that, we, that God also is inviting us to participate with him in the work that he wants to do. And he doesn't honor those who are just completely um, and utterly passive. And so that's not a good response either. A third response is collaboration which is a good step because now in collaboration, you're saying, okay, um, it's not just me tackling this challenge, but I get to do it with God in collaboration with him. So that is, you know, God's on my team and we're going to take this on together. Now, this is a good start and it's a good place because now we're recognizing God in the equation. But here's the problem with this. The problem with this is that sometimes we can get to this spot where we think, God, Aren't you lucky that you got me on your team? 
I mean, isn't this great? We're collaborating. We're, we're partners, right? God, you got me. We can handle this. You're like, you, me, together, we'll tackle this mountain, this challenge, work through this, and we can begin to think, hey, look, I'm an equal partner with God. Are we? No. God is God, and we are not. Right? And there's times we just need to stop and remember that. So here's a different way of saying it. A more biblical concept is this. That a fourth one is a proactive dependence. Yes, there's collaboration, but it's a proactive dependence. This is more of a posture of surrender. That is, God, you're in charge, but I need to be proactive. I need to work with you and and alongside of you. But you're still God. So when things go the way that I don't think they should go, you're still God. I'm surrendered to you. That God, even when things aren't done the way that I want them to go, God, you're still God. I'm dependent upon you. And I'm proactively following you. It's a posture of surrender. It's a recognition that, hey, the prayer that we pray is God, not my will. The same prayer that Jesus prayed, not my will, but your will be done. And I proactively follow you, surrender my life to you. Listen, what God wants to do in our life, your life, my life in this new year is the same thing he's wanting to do in the lives of the people in this story, in Ruth's life, Naomi's life, Boaz's life. He wants us to get to a point of proactive dependence. So here's the last statement. The last statement is this, that through the circumstances of our lives, we'll find that God is shepherding us into a life of proactive dependence. A life of stepping forward in faith but from a posture of surrendering dependence upon God and his control. This is what God wants for us, and it's the very best place for us to be. So let's take a moment and let's ask God for his help with that together. God, we do thank you for the fact that you are um, sovereign, you're in control, you're powerful. We thank you for your hand of providence. We see played out in Ruth's life, and we know that even though we can't always see it, you're still working in our life. Even in the midst of darkness, even in the midst of challenges, circumstances, pain, you're still at work. You're working through your plan. And so, God, we just ask that you would help us to be able to step forward in faith in the way that Ruth did, to trust you, to trust that you are the God who provides protects, defends, and to surrender our lives to you so that you can do something in us and through us. By our faith, as we depend on you, we can have an impact in the lives of others. We pray this together, Lord, in your name. Amen.